On February 13, 2017, a man at Kuala Lumpur International Airport in Malaysia was standing at a kiosk printing his boarding pass. Just like countless millions of other air travelers on any given day at airports around the world. He was in plain sight of hundreds of people, and he was on camera too, thanks to the airport's closed-circuit TV system. So there were plenty of witnesses to what happened next. A young woman dressed in blue jeans and a light-colored top ran up behind him, reached around, and rubbed her hands across his face, smearing them with an oily substance. She muttered the word sorry and hurried away. And just moments later, another woman with a top with the letters LOL printed across it walked up to the man, this time straight on. But just like the first woman, she smeared something across his face and then quickly walked away. Security cameras saw them rush to the restroom to wash their hands. This detail becomes very important later. The man flagged down some airport security guards. And although the closed-circuit TV didn't capture any audio, we can see him gesturing with his hands, pointing at his face, obviously trying to explain this strange encounter. The guards invite him to follow them to the airport's medical facility. But within moments, the man is unable to continue. His walk slows, he starts limping, he sits down in a chair, and soon his body slumps, sliding down toward the ground. Airport personnel find a gurney and transfer him to it, but it's too late. The man is unresponsive. Twenty minutes after the first woman approached him, he's dead. The substances each woman had on her hands was harmless by themselves, but when the two were combined on his face, they formed a VX nerve agent, a chemical compound so lethal that the UN classifies it as a weapon of mass destruction. This man didn't stand a chance, but who was he? It took a whole day for the Malaysian officials to learn his true identity. And that's when the story took on international importance. Because the man murdered at Kuala Lumpur International Airport turned out to be Kim Jong-nam, the eldest half-brother of the supreme leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. And rather than being a grieving relative, the world immediately saw the dictator as the number one suspect. The two women who carried out this bizarre murder in plain sight were in custody within three days. They were 28-year-old Duan Chi Huang, originally from Vietnam, and Siti Aisha, a 25-year-old from Indonesia. Both women worked in the hospitality industry in Malaysia. Siti had a job at the Flamingo Hotel as a masseuse, and Huang was in food service. But how did they become assassins? As we unwind this bizarre tale, we're going to discover that the key question might be, did they even know that they were assassins? And it's very likely that they didn't. Now, this is going to be a first on My Dark Path. We're covering this story across two episodes. This episode goes down the path of the victim, Kim Jong-nam, the history of his family and the country they've ruled over for three generations, and why his own brother may have targeted him for killing. And in the next episode, we'll turn to the story of these two women, how they got involved, and what happened to them afterwards, and as they became pawns in international politics. Both this story and that of these two women deserve their own episode. Get ready for a saga about murder where the murderers themselves were victims and the chillingly contemporary story of how innocent individuals can fall through the cracks when nations clash. No one leaves this story with their hands clean. 
Hi, I'm MF Thomas, and this is the My Dark Path podcast. In every episode, we explore the fringes of history, science, and the paranormal. And so, if you geek out over these subjects, you're among friends here at My Dark Path. And since friends stay in touch, please reach out to me on Instagram, sign up for our newsletter at mydarkpath.com, or just send an email to explore at My Dark Path. I'd love to hear from you. Finally, Thank you for listening and choosing to walk the dark paths of the world with me. Let's get started with episode 20, Assassination by Prank, Part 1, Kim Jong-nam, the dictator's brother. Part 1. 25.6 million people live in the nation of North Korea. That's more people than live in the state of Florida. And nearly all of them have been ruled for their entire lives by one family, the Kim family, which has kept this country brutally repressed and in desperate poverty since 1948. North Korea's people know almost nothing about the world beyond their borders. Even owning a device that can access the global internet is a crime. And yet for all the combined compassion, goodwill, charity, and military might of the world, the problem of North Korea seems unsolvable. And to understand why, we need to go back to World War II when many of the decisions that led us here were made. And I'll warn you, there aren't many bright spots ahead, no silver linings. If we're going to tell the story about how the fate of two women got caught up in the political maneuverings of multiple nations, we need to talk about how every citizen of North Korea is, essentially, trapped in its own nightmare. In 1945, Japan finally agreed to a total surrender after the U.S. dropped two atomic bombs on the city of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so the business of war ended and the business of defining the peace began. Remember that the United States and Soviet Union fought on the same side in World War II, at least after the Nazis broke their truce with the Soviet Union. But both knew that they would soon be at odds in a clash of superpowers. Capitalist democracy versus Stalinism. So peace came with many complexities. And Korea was one of the biggest. Japan had controlled the country for 35 years, but now it had to surrender it back to the Korean people. What sort of government would rise to replace it? The Koreans themselves set up a temporary provisional government, but it didn't last long. In August of 1945, the Soviet Union officially declared war on Japan. Japan was just days away from surrendering, but under this pretext, Stalin's forces drove into Japanese-controlled parts of Manchuria and North Korea. In response to this sudden incursion, two officers in the United States Pentagon quickly took an old map and drew a line across the 38th parallel, dividing the Korean peninsula. The two superpowers came to an agreement. The Soviet Union would occupy and administer the North, while the United States would do the same in the South. This was similar to the proposal to divide the city of Berlin in post-Nazi Germany, with America and its allies administering the West, while the Soviet Union controlled the East. The tragic consequences were similar as well, with the division lasting for decades, splitting the entire country of Germany in two, as well as splitting the capital of Berlin, and the territory becoming a proxy struggle for the dominance between America and the Soviet Union. A guerrilla leader favored by Stalin, Kim Il-sung, became the North's new leader. He was not someone the Korean people would likely have chosen by themselves. He had been living in exile in the Soviet Union for over two decades, 
and what little schooling he had was Chinese, and his Korean language skills were limited. It took extensive training just to prepare him to read a speech to the Communist Party, which the Soviets had written for him to deliver. But support from Joseph Stalin mattered a lot more than the support of the population. The Soviet Union equipped Kim Il-sung with a massive state-of-the-art army and air force. Both the Soviets and Chinese helped train many North Korean pilots. America was trying to build a democracy south of the 38th parallel, and both sides held their own elections. The elections in the South were sanctioned by the United Nations and held on May 10, 1948, where they officially established the Republic of Korea. The North had refused to participate and refused to let UN administrators monitor their own elections. And on September 9th, they established what they called the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, with Kim Il-sung as leader. Both sides to this day claim the right to govern the entire Korean peninsula. And within months, Il-sung was calling for the unification of the two Koreas, and he was willing to use military action to back this up. Although China was initially reluctant to help, with the offer of a treaty and support from the Soviet Union, the two much larger nations encouraged North Korea's aggression. The belief was that a swift, overwhelming attack could overwhelm the South Korean military, just like the Blitzkrieg of Nazi Germany had overwhelmed so many of the nations of Europe. But Stalin was concerned that an attack could draw the participation of the United States, and he did not want a direct confrontation between our army and his. Remember that, at this time, the U.S. was the only nuclear power. The Soviet Union didn't conduct its first known tests until 1949. A little escalation could lead to some challenges, but too much escalation could lead to an annihilation. Interestingly, I'd just returned from a trip to Moscow where I visited a bunker built by Stalin to protect him and key members of his government in this early stage of the Cold War from a potential U.S. nuclear attack. It was an amazing facility, and we'll look forward to sharing that in a future episode. Then Mao Zedong, the chairman of the Communist Party of China, pledged his country's full military support. Stalin, knowing he would not have to send any Soviet troops, gave his approval. The Korean War began on June 25, 1950, and within a matter of weeks, the North Korean army had swept through the South, driving the South Korean forces into a small corner of the peninsula. The UN swiftly passed a resolution deploying a peacekeeping force, including a large contingent of American soldiers. Together, the coalition forces helped North Korea push the invasion back to the 38th parallel, and beyond. Those Chinese forces were drawn into the fight, and a dangerous stalemate ensued, with giant armies skirmishing and maneuvering for position along the border. After many months, the two sides started negotiating an armistice in the summer of 1951. The world held its breath. The possibility of another global conflict breaking out seemed terrifyingly close. Perhaps the most active opponent of any peace agreement was Stalin, who saw the war as an opportunity to drain the resources of the United States. But his health was failing rapidly, and not long after his death, the Korean Armistice Agreement was signed on July 27, 1953. It established a demilitarized zone two and a half miles wide along the 38th parallel, and both North and South Korea agreed to a ceasefire. But what's crucial to understanding the present situation is this. It was not a peace treaty. 
Legally, the two countries are still at war and have been so for seven decades. The area, right outside the so-called demilitarized zone, is one of the most heavily militarized in the world, with as many as two million troops on both sides watching the border. Among those troops are 28,000 American military forces still maintaining a presence for our South Korean allies. Now, while these fundamental facts haven't changed, the danger on the Korean peninsula is always evolving. For one thing, North Korea is now on its third dictator from the Kim family. According to a defector who escaped North Korea, if you ask a school child where their milk comes from, they won't say it came from a farm or a cow or a dairy. Instead, they will say it came from their supreme leader, and that is because of his love and generosity that allowed them to have the milk today. This is what they're taught. The government, the education system, and the media of North Korea are all ruthlessly disciplined around one message, the power and might of their ruler and protector, the supreme leader. This supreme leader was Kim Il-sung from 1948 until his death in 1994. At this point, the Soviet Union had collapsed, and without their backing, North Korea was plunging into an economic crisis. But the position of the supreme leader endured and was taken by Kim Jong-il, the son of Kim Il-sung. He ruled until his death from a heart attack in 2011, and the power is now in the hands of his son, Kim Jong-un. Every succession was the result of violent, behind-the-scenes conspiracy, which we'll get into, but the result is an unbroken line of dominance of a single nation by three generations of the same family. Citizens of North Korea, with very few exceptions, cannot travel beyond their borders or access any information except what their government provides them. And what their government provides is pure cult of personality. Children are drilled every day in school that the supreme leader is caring, compassionate, and altruistic, and that the United States is evil and conspiring every day to kill them, and that only the supreme leader protects them. They learn this from classroom lessons, through literature, and even through songs. Ancient mythology has been rewritten to incorporate the Kim family. When students reach high school, they are required to enroll in courses solely focused on Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. What they're taught goes well beyond the plausible. The supreme leader, they're told, is literally superhuman. Famous masterpieces of painting and music are credited to Kim Jong-un, who's also described as learning to drive when he was just three years old and racing yachts when he was only nine. Children are taught that when his father, Kim Jong-il, was born, a new star appeared in the sky. Kim Jong-il could walk just by three weeks old and made 11 hole-in-ones in a single golf game and authored over 1,500 books all by himself. North Korea even tells its citizens that the supreme leader doesn't have to urinate. Remember what we said about cult psychology in our episode about the false messiah and the years of lead in Brazil. The unrelenting assault of propaganda combined with the element of fear is powerful enough to make a person believe just about anything. Throughout the country, you'll find portraits, statues, paintings, and illustrations of Kim Il-sung, along with his son and grandson. People flock every day to one of more than 500 statues of the original supreme leader, leaving flowers and paying respects. 
Marches, rallies, and operas hailing the Kim family are constant. It's mandatory to wear a North Korean flag pin on your shirt at all times. And when Kim Jong-il passed away in 2011, the outside world saw images of tens of thousands of mourners flooding the streets of North Korea, sobbing uncontrollably. They may have faced severe punishment if they didn't mourn adequately, but they face severe punishment for nearly any offense. The U.S. Justice Department published a lengthy and detailed report on North Korean human rights practices. It found that the government and its agents have no functioning investigative system. Punishments, even killings, are politically motivated or simply arbitrary. Anyone attempting to leave the country without permission can be killed on the spot or publicly executed. It's one of the many reasons it's so hard for the outside world to see or know what's happening inside the country at any time. The death penalty can be used if you're found guilty of murder or rape or drug dealing or even possessing a Bible or owning any videos from South Korea or anything the government can define as suspicious activity. And sometimes there's no criminal accusation at all. People simply disappear. Defectors have reported widespread use of torture and inhumane conditions in North Korean prisons, beatings, electric shocks, prisoners left out in the cold overnight, and water torture, the list goes on. Prisoners regularly die from these cruelties if they don't die from overcrowding, food shortages, or the lack of medical care. And any woman in a North Korean prison is likely the target of sexual abuse. Political prisoners face the most harsh punishment, and their sentences might be expanded to include three generations of their family. And political crimes don't just mean attempting to defect or leaking information to the outside world. It's considered a political crime if you sit on a newspaper with the picture of the Supreme Leader on it. Citizens are regularly required to participate in political meetings or public self-criticism sessions where they declare how unworthy they are to receive the blessings of the Supreme Leader. And as you may monitor the news today, you can see how Western cancel culture is a direct offshoot of this diabolical Marxist technique. In North Korea, the government needs no permission to enter your home or search your belongings, your correspondence, or any information contained on any piece of technology you own. Phone lines can't make international calls, and any cell signals that reach over the Chinese border are jammed. There's no independent journalism in North Korea, no media of any kind except what comes from the government. That means books, radio, TV, newspapers, all of it needs the approval of the supreme leader. Sharing any content which isn't approved is punishable by up to a year in a labor camp and five years for multiple offenses. Televisions and radios are designed so that they can't receive signals from the outside. And if you have a TV that's been modified to pick up international programming, you'll also be jailed. Internet access is limited to high-ranking officials and other designated elites. There's a North Korean network that connects some top-tier schools and research institutes, but it cannot connect to the outside world. Government monitoring programs are installed on every smartphone and tablet. Every web page is logged and screenshots are randomly taken. Only about 18% of citizens have cell phones, and they come with a censorship program pre-installed to block out all foreign media. Monitoring software randomly inspects the phone's history for any suspicious activity. You need special permission to even live in the capital city of Pyongyang. 
Unauthorized assemblies and public meetings are prohibited. The only people permitted to travel outside the country are government officials, business executives, artists, athletes, academics, and workers that the government deems trustworthy. Now, there are elections in North Korea, but they're a farce. The government typically reports that 100% of the population voted and that the government's pre-selected candidates received 100% of the vote. But even in a vote this rigged, the supreme leader never needs to run for re-election. It all seems beyond imagining. It challenges our sense of justice. How can a situation like this continue for so long, ensnaring so many people? How, in the 21st century, can 25 million people be subject to a government such as this? So, you have to ask the question, in whose interest does it serve to keep the status quo? Part 2 There's no shortage of people, organizations, and nations who would like to do something about North Korea. But this reclusive, mercurial, poverty-stricken dictatorship has defied all efforts to undermine it. Sanctions have little impact. The North Korean army lined up across their border hasn't swayed them. And no amount of protests from the United Nations has stopped them from building up an arsenal of chemical and nuclear weapons. They routinely make wild, bombastic threats, demand food assistance from foreign nations, And then the government keeps most of the food and shares just enough with the population for the country to limp along. One way to look at the problem is to consider their borders. If North Korea decided to unleash their army and cross the demilitarized zone, the casualties on both sides of the Korean peninsula would be horrific. That stockpile of weapons of mass destruction could be deployed. And meanwhile, there are other borders shared with Russia and China. If the government of North Korea fully and finally collapsed, millions of refugees would stream across those borders, creating one of the largest humanitarian crises in history. Russia and China still actively support the supreme leader in part out of that strong self-interest, helping just enough to keep the country functioning. And this leaves us in this current state of misery, where the grandson of North Korea's first dictator rules over a nation with a long track record of rogue international behavior, including kidnappings and assassinations. Kim Jong-un's power is unchallenged, and it was his first order of business when he took power that anyone who might make a claim to the position of supreme leader had a very short life expectancy, including, as we'll discuss, members of his own family. Kim Jong-un wasn't originally first in line to inherit the title, though. So how did he wind up as North Korea's new dictator in 2011? This brings us back to Kim Jong-nam, who was the oldest half-brother of the current supreme leader. The family tree of a dictator can get somewhat complicated, you might imagine. Kim Jong-il had a patchwork of wives and domestic partners and fathered at least six children that we know of. Jong-nam was his oldest, born May 10, 1971, in Pyongyang. His mother was a Korean actress, Song Hee-ram, with whom the supreme leader had a long-running domestic partnership. Kim Jong-il was such an enormous movie fan that he would arrange to have filmmakers and actors he admired from South Korea kidnapped so that they could make movies for him. 
Now, Kim Jong-il's father actually disapproved of his philandering, so Kim Jong-nam was kept secret for the first years of his life, homeschooled by his mother's sister. And when he was eight, he was sent to live with his maternal grandmother in Moscow. He attended boarding schools in both Russia and Switzerland, receiving the kind of education that North Korea's own citizens could never get. He also studied political science, technology, and learned to speak German, French, and English. As the eldest son, it was naturally assumed that he would become supreme leader someday. And unlike his own father and grandfather, he seemed to be studying about how to do it well. But when he returned to North Korea, his father, Kim Jong-il, had married another woman and was carrying on multiple affairs and had fathered several more children among them. He lived in an oceanfront compound with many of his partners, and his eldest son was not permitted to visit. Cast out from his father's love and attention, he went to work for the Ministry of People's Security, what passes for law enforcement in this country. They protect North Korea's VIPs, gather intelligence, manage the nation's prison system, protect nuclear power plants, and also supervise the distribution of food to the population. It was the late 90s, and with his international education on computers, Kim Jong-nam was put in charge of the country's technology development program. It was a high-profile job, and by all accounts, he performed it well. It added to his reputation as a future supreme leader. But the question remained, did he even want the position? And amazingly, what he seemed to want more than absolute power was simply to take his family to Disneyland. Not long after King Jong-nam had his first child, he started making secret trips to Japan. The two countries have a strained relationship, to say the least. When North Korea wanted to train intelligence operatives how to speak convincing Japanese, they simply kidnapped Japanese citizens from the coast nearest to North Korea. Plus, there's the fact that no one in North Korea can leave without the government's permission. So King Jong-nam started using false IDs and passports to make his trips. In 2001, in an attempt to take two female companions and his son to Tokyo Disney, he obtained a counterfeit Chinese passport with a fake name. Unfortunately, his passport didn't fool airport security in Japan, and Kim Jong-nam was taken into custody and then deported to China. It was an international embarrassment for his father, Kim Jong-il, who canceled a trip to China in response. This one incident, it seems, forever eliminated Kim Jong-nam's chances of becoming the supreme leader. And by 2003, he was living in exile in the Chinese-controlled region of Macau. The Chinese government protected Kim Jong-nam to a degree. There was always a chance, after all, that he would end up in power. And North Korea monitored his actions aggressively, but it was risky to move against him. And suddenly, King Jong-nam was doing something that almost no one else on Earth had the ability to do, openly criticize the North Korean government from a position of influence. And while power passed from Kim Jong-il to Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-nam, the older brother, now living in exile, was also taking meetings with agents from the CIA. So with his chief rival out of the way, how did the younger Kim Jong-un secure his path to power? How was he able to, at just 28 years old, so quickly establish an unbreakable grip on this entire country? There's 
There was still one older brother, and we haven't talked about him yet. His name was Kim Jung Chowell, and he and Kim Jong Un came from the same mother. After the Tokyo Disney incident, North Korea began to describe her as the, quote, respected mother who is the most faithful and loyal subject to the dear leader, comrade, supreme commander, end quote. The public largely assumed that the next oldest, Kim Jong-chal, was now the heir apparent, but in fact, he was out of the running and had perhaps never been in it. One common element you find in violent dictatorships is an obsession with a particular idea of masculinity. Cruelty, aggression, and conquest are the most manly virtues. Thoughtfulness, doubt, fear, or compassion are considered too womanly and too weak. There's no coincidence that the rights and freedom of women are ruthlessly suppressed in such cultures, and anyone who shows a hint of what they would consider feminine values is seen as unworthy of authority. And here was the thing that doomed Kim Jong-chul, the middle son. We don't know nearly enough to speak to his sexuality or what behaviors in particular were seen as suspect, but for years the rumors spread Kim Jong-il didn't trust his middle son, saw him as too effeminate. Merely the idea that he was not as masculine as his father wanted him to be meant that he would never be the supreme leader. And by the time Kim Jong-il's health started to decline in the late 2000s, the leading candidate to replace him was now the third son, Kim Jong-un. This was made official in 2009. He had just turned 26. So who was he? As we mentioned, Kim Jong-un was just 28 when he fully stepped into the title of Dear Successor. Details of his life have been pieced together by guesswork from American and South Korean intelligence agencies. It's believed that he attended private schools in Switzerland under a fake name. Whoever this student was, classmates described him as ambitious but somewhat shy. He showed little interest in politics. His major passion was basketball. He would draw pictures of Michael Jordan, play video games, watch Jackie Chan movies. Perfectly ordinary for a teenage boy at the time, but apparently he would also occasionally tell friends that his father was the ruler of North Korea. He had a taste for the finer things that the world outside of North Korea offered. The family's former chef remembers that he loved to drive a Mercedes-Benz to drink Johnny Walker whiskey. The first time he was officially mentioned by the state media, it was to announce that he had been promoted to a military rank equivalent to a four-star general. The theory is that this was a hasty attempt to build up his credentials in the public's eyes as his father's health failed. But Kim Jong-il faded faster than they anticipated, and he died on December 17, 2010. There was one final threat to Kim Jong-un. Because of his youth and inexperience, there was talk that while he would undoubtedly become supreme leader someday, a temporary caretaker might rule while he matured. A supreme leader regent, if you will. There was a clear candidate for the job, Kim Jong-un's uncle-in-law, the longtime second-in-command to the newly deceased supreme leader. His name was Jong Song Tech. Jong had loyally served the government since the 1970s, and despite political intrigue that saw him reassigned to projects far from power, he had an uncanny ability to excel in those positions and work his way back into the inner circle. That sort of popularity can come at a price, though. The first time that rumors emerged that he might serve as supreme leader after Kim Jong-il, he was removed from his role in Korea's only political party. 
Rumors reached South Korea that he was under house arrest and then forced into a re-education camp. A military truck rammed a vehicle that he was in, trying to kill him. And despite all of this, he worked his way back to Kim Jong-il's side. Whatever disputes occurred, whatever deals were made behind the scenes, we'll never know. What we do know is that less than a month after Kim Jong-il's death, Kim Jong-un was named supreme leader. No caveats, no regents, and no waiting period. His uncle-in-law pledged his absolute allegiance and remained in his position as second in command. But that was far from the end of the story. Kim Jong-un had power, but if you know anything about dictators, you know they don't stop until they've eliminated every possible threat. Part 3 Jong Sung Tech was instrumental in smoothing the transition. If North Korea was going to survive, it needed to maintain a functioning relationship with its most important ally, China. And remember, the eldest son, Kim Jong Nam, was living there in exile, untouchable and increasingly vocal in his criticism of the North Korean government. Jong Sung Tech had, for the first year of Kim Jong Un's rule, helped maintain a sense of continuity. But then something happened. We don't know what it was, and perhaps nothing had instigated it, but Kim Jong Un simply changed his mind about his uncle. That's something dictators have been known to do. And Jong Sung Tech was suddenly demoted, appointed to the head of North Korea's Physical Culture and Sports Guidance Commission. He was noticeably missing from meetings of high-level government officials, meetings where his presence had been constant and expected for many years. And when Kim Jong-un made his first official visit to China in 2013, his uncle did not travel with him. This was a clear sign that he was being cut loose of any responsibility in the government. One thing it's important to remember about governments like this is that they survive because of the people who get rich from the system. If you take care of the generals, so to speak, they'll take care of you. There were long-standing rumors that Jong Song Tech was too sympathetic to Kim Jong Nam, the brother in exile. But as far as we can tell, the step that proved truly fatal had to do with control of the fishing industry on North Korea's west coast. Back in 2011, Jong had arranged for it to be controlled by his loyalists. Then the military seized it for themselves. Fighting broke out between the two factions and some of Kim Jong-un's soldiers were killed. This was a step too far. You couldn't strike against the supreme leader's military and expect to get away with it. Jong Song Thek was never seen in public again. A lengthy statement was put out through North Korean media that Jong Song Thek was a despicable human being, worse than a dog, guilty of acts of treachery, of betraying his party and family, of attempting to topple the North Korean government in an evil orchestrated power grab. In December of 2013, Jong Song Thek was tried on these charges in a military tribunal. The trial, as you can imagine, didn't take long. In fact, the period from when he was removed from office to when he was executed by firing squad was just four days. The similarity to the show trials and purges performed under Joseph Stalin, who did so much to influence the creation of North Korea and the installation of Kim Jong-sung isn't a coincidence. Remember when I said that the political crimes were considered to be the worst of all crimes in North Korea and that your own guilt could spread to members of your family? 
Jong Sung-thek's nephew and brother-in-law were North Korea's ambassadors to Malaysia and Cuba, respectively. They got an unexpected summons to return to Pyongyang, where they were executed too. More relatives were purged, children included. A North Korean news outlet even reports that one of the nephews was executed by a flamethrower. References to Jong Sung-thek's names were scrubbed from all North Korean media, and it was a comprehensive effort to erase him and his whole family from existence and history. Was he loyal? Was he a threat? In the end, it didn't matter. All that mattered was that the dictator felt that he was. Whatever skills and experience in being a supreme leader that Kim Jong-un may have lacked, his willingness to sentence anyone to death seems to have come naturally. He even reportedly had his defense minister executed for dozing off during a rally. Kim Jong-un had mastered the use of fear in holding power, and he needed something else to carry on in the tradition of his father and grandfather. He needed that benevolent public face. His plan didn't have anything to do with giving the population more food or more rights. Instead, he wanted to bring modern pleasures and pastimes to North Korea. He envisioned upgrades like those he had seen in other countries, a place to get a latte or take a Pilates class, a water park to cool off on a hot day. Whether a regular citizen would have the money or even the permission to enjoy these pleasures didn't matter. Kim Jong-un felt that the citizens he ruled would be happier just knowing they lived in a nation great enough to have such things. In the meantime, the cult of personality around him was building momentum, reassuring the people that their new supreme leader was just as much of a superhuman genius, athlete, artist, and warrior as his father and grandfather had been. It seemed as though he had covered all of his bases, except for one, his older brother. Kim Jong-nam only grew more vocal in his calls for reform after the purge of Jong Sung-tek and his family. He even told a Japanese journalist that, without governmental reform, the Kim dynasty would topple and his younger brother would wind up as a puppet, a figurehead. Remember, most of his education took place outside of his home country. He'd seen how the rest of the world lived, how a truly modern nation looked and operated. North Korea is one of only four nations where Facebook is banned, but Jong Nam had his own Facebook profile under a fake name. You can still access it, by the way. It's under the name Kim Chol, but it's not very active. Everything Kim Jong-nam was doing could have had him executed if he had been in North Korea, but North Korea knew it wasn't in a strong position to provoke China. China was actually backing international economic sanctions against them over their nuclear weapons program. China had always refused to help North Korea in developing nuclear technology. Their training and expertise had come from the Soviet Union. At the time, North Korea said they only wanted to develop nuclear technology for peaceful purposes, for energy independence. And it's an open question whether the Soviet Union believed this fiction, but they helped just enough that North Korea was able to advance from peaceful purposes to working weapons. So the relationship with China was tense, and Kim Jong-un had made it that much worse by slaughtering his uncle and his family. China had thought highly of Jong, so the supreme leader did not have many options in dealing with his older brother. Unless, that is, Kim Jong-nam left China. 
Remember when I said that we had confirmation that Kim Jong-nam had met with CIA agents? Given how secretive and repressive North Korea is, he was a potential treasure trove of information about the inner workings of the government and his own family. It's natural that the CIA would be interested in having a working relationship with him, but we don't know just how far that relationship went. We do know a couple of things. One, that North Korea had already made at least one attempt to kill Kim Jong-nam. A government agent acting under orders tracked down where he was living and offered a large sum of money to a taxi driver to run over the exiled brother. But the taxi driver never did it. The other thing we know comes from Kim Jong-nam's belongings during his fateful trip to Malaysia. That day at the airport, his trip was over and he was on his way back to China, back to safe territory. During his trip, he'd gone to Long Kwai, an island vacation retreat. We know that at a hotel there, he met with an unidentified Korean-American, a man believed to have connections to the CIA. Then, after he was assassinated, the baggage he had with him was examined thoroughly, and he had $138,000 in cash in his bag, as well as a laptop computer. A forensic analysis of that computer revealed that a large amount of data had been recently downloaded to a flash drive, a flash drive that was never found. Was he exchanging information for money? Did he need the money badly enough to risk exposing himself? It's a theory that matches the evidence. And even if that wasn't the case, he put himself in incredible danger by leaving Macau. He gave his younger brother the opportunity to finally destroy the biggest threat to his position. Maybe Kim Jong-nam felt safe in Kuala Lumpur International Airport, in plain sight, surrounded by cameras and security guards. He failed to imagine just how urgently someone wanted him dead, and just how audacious a plan they were willing to execute to see it done. That failure of imagination, more than anything else, is what cost him his life. Part 4 I can't give you anything to make you feel extra sympathy for Kim Jong-nam. His ideas for reform in North Korea didn't involve it moving toward democracy. He believed its government should be modeled more after China's. Maybe that helps explain why China was willing to protect him and amplify his criticism. In a sense, they were keeping their options open, holding on to a backup in case Kim Jong-un's supreme leadership didn't work out. A backup that might make some cosmetic adjustments, but who, in China's eyes, wouldn't disrupt the stalemate the world is in right now. We've talked about the population of North Korea being just over 25 million people. But don't forget that China has a population of almost 1.4 billion people. And to a superpower that size, maybe those 25 million people are just pawns. Or perhaps just one pawn, guarding their most vulnerable flank on the Korean peninsula. As long as the geopolitical game stays this way, the North Korean people are doomed to live lives of starvation and terror. But even for the lucky ones, the privileged citizens who sit close to wealth and power, things aren't ultimately that much better. Born just one step away from absolute power, Kim Jong-nam nevertheless died in a public spectacle, in excruciating pain, because it turned out that his whole life was a dark path that only led to two possible destinations— One, to become the supreme leader, or two, to die because your existence is a threat to your brother. And as for the instruments of his murder, those young women I mentioned, Don Chi Huang 
and Siti Aisha. Their story shows us the irony that people who come from nothing can still take everything from you. It shows the astounding, elaborate planning that went into setting up this lethal prank for Kim Jong-nan's assassination. And it shows how much of their own fate, after the deed was done, would have nothing to do with their guilt or innocence. And part two of this story is coming in just two weeks. Thank you for listening to My Dark Path. I'm M.F. Thomas, the creator and host, and I produce this show with Ashley Whitesides and Eva Dean Hendricks. Our creative director is Dom Purdy. This story was prepared for us by Roseanne Sinclair. Our senior story editor is Nicholas Thurkettle, and our fact checker, making his debut with My Dark Path this week, is Nicholas Abraham. A big thank you to each of them and the entire My Dark Path team. If you would, take a moment to give My Dark Path a rating and a review wherever you're listening. It really helps the show, and we'd love to hear from you. Again, thanks for walking the dark paths of history, science, and the paranormal with me. Until next time, good night. does North Korea share with Russia? How many miles of border does North Korea share with Russia?